Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you would open to 2 Samuel 16. We're going to pick up the life of David um, and find out what um, is happening in his world. Lots of changes going on. For those of you that weren't at the service this morning, Pastor Roger is teaching the book of James. It is practical, but don't, don't, don't go if you don't want to get slapped around because it will definitely whack you upside the head. Very practical book on living out the reality of what we say we believe. So, our world is filled, I use the word drowning, in human opinion. Right? Almost everybody has an opinion on almost everything. And almost all of them are convinced that you need to hear it. Even if you didn't ask for it. Correct? It's almost impossible to find someone who says, I don't know. I'm not qualified to give you an opinion on that topic. I haven't heard anybody tell me that in years. And the book of Proverbs advises us to follow good advice. But how do you tell if the advice you're getting is good or bad? How do you know whether it's life-giving or just stuck on stupid? Many of us, most of us, have followed somebody else's directions that got us more lost than we were before we listened to them, right? Even more of us have got lost by following our own advice. It's been said the trouble with good advice is that it usually interferes with your plans. Today we're going to look at good advice that was rejected because it didn't agree with somebody's plans. And we're also going to take a look at bad advice that was followed because it did agree with somebody's plans. Proverbs 24, 6 says, For by wise guidance you will wage war, and an abundance of counselors there is victory. So it sounds like good advice is wise advice, and more advisors are better than only one. Today's lesson, we're going to take a look at advice that sounds good, but in fact turns out to be downright dangerous to your health. As a matter of fact, it got a guy killed. So the historical context, where we are in time, David is now about 62 years old, 60 to 62, about 10, 12 years ago when he was age 50, he committed the adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband Uriah to try and cover it up. When he confesses and repents, God forgives him, but he tells him that his sin is going to have lifetime consequences. And because of David's sexual sin and murder, God says, your own family is going to be plagued with sexual misconduct and bloodshed for the rest of your life. Within two years after that prediction by Nathan, David's oldest son Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar. Two years after that, son number three, Absalom, arranges for the murder of son number one, Amnon, in revenge, and then he flees into exile. 
Absalom stays about 90 miles north in the land of Geshur, which is a, a small country north of Israel. He stays there a total of actually three years. And then David brings him back home. But David doesn't see his face. He literally puts him under house arrest for two more years. Finally, after five years, they do meet. Absalom and his son number three, David, do meet, but they do not reconcile. Because David has a history of murder himself and adultery, he's got a guilty conscience. And that conscience hinders him from disciplining or forgiving his children. Ron, this is, this is Ron Medeiros' idea, and I thought it was extremely good. About two weeks ago, he laid an idea on me. I'm going to share it with you. Even though David has confessed his sin to God, he never confessed it to his family. He never sat down with his children and his spouses and said, I want to talk to you about my sin. I want to confess my sin to you so that we as a family can be healed from the disaster that I brought on us. That's what parents and especially fathers are incumbent to do. You are the spiritual architects of your family's spiritual history and future. And David did not humble himself before his family, even though he humbled himself before his God. The book of James, which we're going to find out, says, confess your faults to one another so that you might be forgiven, right? Wrong. It says, confess your faults to one another so that you might be healed. Forgiveness comes from Jesus, but the healing comes from each other. And David failed to do that. And as a result of that, when Amnon raped Tamar, he didn't forgive him and he didn't discipline him either. They were stuck. And when Absalom killed Amnon, David did nothing. Twice. He didn't discipline him and he didn't restore him. Now you'll notice when you sin, God does not do that. When you and I sin, God disciplines us, but he also does what? He forgives us and restores the relationship. David did not do that. And Absalom spends years being alienated from his father and he becomes bitter. And that is what generates his intent to revolt against his father. He does that four years after he comes back home. He's not restored to his father. He spends 48, 48 months plotting. And about four years after that, he says, I'm going to Hebron with your blessing. I'm going to pay my vows. I'm going to do a sacrifice. And David says, go. David is now 60 to 62. And Absalom declares a coup. He's already laid the groundwork. He's got significant influential leaders in the nation to ally with him. And Hebron is about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. Last week, we took a look at David decided to flee Jerusalem to avoid the bloodshed that was going to occur if he stayed in uh, the city. So Absalom marches from Hebron to Jerusalem, about 20 miles. He's at the head of a very large army. David hears of it, of course, and flees to the north and west. Rob will show you north and east. Rob will show you a picture in a few minutes. When Absalom enters Jerusalem, he finds David gone and the whole royal family gone. He took his, uh, with the exception of 10 concubines, he took his wives and children with him. So Absalom now is in the city and he has a council of war. Let's pick up the narrative in 2 Samuel 16, verse 20. 
Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your advice. What should we do? That's a very good question. Verse 21, Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines whom he has left to keep the house. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you will also be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Verse 23. The advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired of the word of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel regarded by both David and Absalom. Here's the principle. Know God's word and refuse to follow advice that disagrees with it. Know God's word and refuse to follow advice that disagrees with it. You cannot obey what you do not know. And if you do not know God's word, you'll have no eternal vision to evaluate human opinion with. Now, this is a war council. Absalom's trying to figure out the next step. They've entered Jerusalem. David and his followers have fled. What's the next step? Ahithophel has a virtually perfect record in giving good advice. Absalom and David regard his advice as if God were speaking. They took his word as the word of God. That's his track record. Extremely solid. And he's abandoned David and follows Absalom. So Absalom says, what should we do next? Ahithophel gives him advice in two parts. Part number one was something Absalom was going to have to do himself the second part of Ahithophel's advice is what he, Ahithophel, was going to do for Absalom. The first thing he said was, Absalom, have sex with your father's wives. Remember that David had left 10 concubines, which are kind of a surrogate wife. Um, David had eight wives and at least 10 concubines, so 18 sexual relationships that we know of which is way more than you even want to contemplate. I mean, that is beyond comprehension. At any rate, we talked about David's slavery to lust a couple of weeks ago. He says, Absalom, have sex with your father's concubines, and that will make reconciliation between you and your father impossible. There is no way there's any bridge back to relationship with your father after you do this. When you appropriated that royal harem, it was pos proof positive to the world. It was evidence that, in fact, you had replaced the prior king. They were deposed and you were large and in charge. Ahithophel wants Absalom to burn his bridges. Remember, remember, you've all heard the story about Cortez, lands in Mexico. He tells his soldiers, burn all the, burn all the ships. So he's got several hundred troops on the beach and the ships are going up in smoke. And he says, we're going to burn the ships because there's no retreat. There's only one way, and it's forward into the interior. And either we're going to win or we're going to die because there's no back door. And that's exactly what Ahithophel is saying to Absalom. When you have sex with your father's concubines, either you're going to die or dad's going to die, but you are never going to reconcile. And he says to do that because when the nation knew, knows that Absalom is staking his own life, on the success of this revolt, they're gonna be all in as well. So, interesting question. Ahithophel has betrayed David and allied himself with his son. He's a co-conspirator in this revolt. Why? 
History tells us that he was one of David's closest confidants. In Psalm 41.10, David describes Ahithophel as my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread. I mean, they barbecued together at the palace. These two were tight. They were good friends. I'm told they both liked pork, which, you know. <laughs> Barbecued pork. I mean, probably not, probably not. You know. However, when you do a little genealogical history, you find there's a serious problem because Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. That might have a bearing. Ahithophel is so bitter over David's adultery with his granddaughter and murder of her husband that 12 years later, he still is looking for revenge. However, Ahithophel has no idea that his advice to Absalom is simply a fulfilling of the prophecy that God had commanded Nathan to tell David. Nathan, the prophet, when David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, Nathan said to David, God says what you have done in private with another man's wife, your companion is going to do in public with your wives. 2 Samuel 12. This is 12 years before. That prophecy was now being fulfilled to the letter. The exact same rooftop that David had walked on 12 years before, lusted after Bathsheba, had sex with her, was the exact same rooftop they put a tent on and over several days, Absalom has sex with David's 10 wives. Now, having sexual relationship with your father's wives was absolutely forbidden by the Mosaic law. Doing so publicly was unthinkable. I mean, it was an abomination. You never would think about doing something like that. God was taking David's secret sin of adultery and he was putting it on public display so that God's people, the Israelites, could see how despicable it was. That's what sin is. Don't kid yourself. Sin is despicable. It's ugly. It's raw sewage. Satan is a master of surrounding arsenic with chocolate frosting so that you'll take it. It will kill you, chocolate and all. It's still arsenic. It's likely that Absalom engaged in this public sin over several days while his army is being assembled for the coming battle. You're persuaded that if David could only have seen the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba, he never would have done it. Pastor Roger has a favorite saying, so does Pastor Phil. Remember, sin takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you far more than you want to pay. Next, Ahithophel tells Absalom what he will do for him. First thing is what Absalom had to do. At the same time, he gives him two-part advice. Chapter 17, verse 1. Furthermore, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Please let me choose 12,000 men that I may arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and exhausted and terrify him so that all the people who are with him will flee. Then I will strike down the king alone and I will bring back all the people to you. The return of everyone depends on the man you seek. Then all the people will be at peace. So the plan pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Here's the principle. Good advice has specific goals 
and measurable outcomes. Good advice has specific goals and measurable outcome. See, advice is always directional. When you ask advice, you want to know what to do. What should we do from here going forward? So advice always takes you in a direction. It always takes you in a path. And good advice has very specific goals and very measurable outcomes. Ahithophel's advice to Absalom is very, very simple. Kill David now. Very simple. Is that measurable? Of course. Is it specific? Yeah, very much so. With the king dead, all Israel will follow Absalom, his son. He says, until David is dead, you have competing royalty. You've got dad and you've got son. One he has got to die. If dad dies, Israel will rally behind Absalom as his son. Now, this was extremely good counsel, and it would have worked. David was exhausted. David was unprepared to fight. He could have easily been overtaken and killed that very night. He, only, he had nowhere near 12,000 soldiers. He had maybe 600 with him at that point in time. However, there's a problem. Ahithophel's plan is all about who? Ahithophel. When you read those three verses, five times in three verses, he says, me or I, right? I will choose 12,000 soldiers. I will pursue David. I will kill the king. I will bring all the people back to you. He wants to lead, but above all else, he wants to kill David himself. It's interesting, David doesn't say, I want to kill David. He says, I will strike down the king. Ahithophel still recognizes that David is God's anointed, still the king, but he wants him dead and he wants to do the deal himself. That's how angry he is. Everyone in this room recognizes that this council is very wise. It will work. Once David was dead, Absalom would have no opposition. Israel would rally behind him. Verse 5. Then Absalom said, Now call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. When Hushai had come to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Ahithophel has spoken thus and so. Shall we carry out his plans? If not, you speak. You know, it's usually a good idea to get a second opinion, right? I mean, when you're going to do surgery and they're going to cut on you, whether they use anesthetic or not, right, it's a good idea to get a second opinion. Just, just saying, probably a good idea. So Absalom is saying, well, let's get a second opinion here probably a good idea when it talks about the success of a revolution. More counselors is probably wiser, so let's get a second opinion. Remember, Hushai isn't even a part of this council. He's an outsider. They have to call him in. Hushai is known as David's friend. He has a long history with David, and everybody knows he has a long history with David. Remember when David was climbing up last week, we talked about the Mount of Olives, and he runs into Hushai at the top, and just before he gets to the top, he finds out that his, his secretary of state, Ahithophel, has defected. And he prays a prayer, and what does he say? Oh, God, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. He knows that Ahithophel is dangerous. He's accurate. He's a very good advisor, and he knows that Ahithophel will give Absalom counsel that will get him killed. He says, God... I pray, make his counsel foolishness. And within 10 steps, who does he run into? 
his friend Hushai, and he says, Hushai, go back into the city, pledge your loyalty to Absalom, tell him as you served David the king, now you're going to serve Absalom the king, and see if you can thwart Ahithophel's counsel. Confound it. Make, do something, but give advice that will make Ahithophel's counsel not followed. That was his job description. So Hushai comes back into the city. He says, King Absalom, I'm now loyal to you as I was to loyal to David, etc., etc." So they call him in and say, what do you say? However, this is very interesting. Absalom made a major mistake. He told Hushai what advice Ahithophel had already given him. Now you know what the opposition's planning. Absalom better kept his mouth shut. It had been much more difficult for Hushai to give advice to confound Ahithophel. He didn't even know what it was. But Absalom said, this is what Ahithophel told us to do. What do you say? Right? Hushai knew immediately that Ahithophel's plan to pursue David that night had a very high chance of success. He only had seconds to come up with a counter plan that will save David's life. Everyone knew that he had been David's close friends, and so this council does not trust him. So he's got to give advice that they will believe even though they don't trust him. He has to give advice that will result in Absalom's death, but it has to sound like it's going to guarantee Absalom's victory. That's a tough job. Mission impossible. So guided by the Holy Spirit, Hushai gives an impromptu advice. I mean, it's literally off the cuff. And he's going to appeal to Absalom's fear and Absalom's pride. Verse 7. So Hushai said to Absalom, this time the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good. Verse 8. Moreover, Hushai says, you know your father and his men, that they are mighty men and they are fierce, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is an expert in warfare, and he will not spend the night with the people. Behold, he has now hidden himself in one of the caves or in another place, and it will be when he falls on them at the first attack that whoever hears of it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And even the one who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will completely lose heart. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. Who she acknowledges? You know, Ahithophel has got a good track record. But this time, just this time, his advice is not good, and here's why. See, Ahithophel's plan depends on one thing. David is weary, David is exhausted, and David's followers are frightened enough to flee and leave David isolated so he can be killed easily. Hushai knows David better than anybody, and everybody in the room knows that he's his friend, and he's going to leverage this intimate knowledge of David to scare him. He says, remember, your dad is not an amateur warrior. Your dad is an expert in guerrilla warfare. He's a seasoned warrior, and he's not just sleeping in a sleeping bag around a campfire singing Kumbaya. He is waiting for you to ambush him. Matter of fact, he's waiting to ambush you. He's probably hidden someplace by the path, and when you come waltzing in there, he's going to attack you. He's an expert, been doing this with Saul for 10, 15 years. And by the way, his troops that are with him, they're not Boy Scouts either. They're battle-hardened veterans that will kill you just as soon as look at you. And right now, they're angry. They're furious and they're protective. And a mother bear robbed of her cubs. One of the things about Hushai, man, he uses word pictures. He is a master of metaphor. And he's painting pictures to inspire fear 
in the people that he's listening to. Hushai says, when David ambushes you and kills some of your troops, the fear will spread and even your bravest warriors, Absalom, those with the heart of a lion are going to panic and they're going to desert and the word will get out among their troops. There's been a slaughter among Absalom's people and if people desert you, your cause is lost. So Hushai has given him a problem and now he's going to give him the solution. Absalom's problem is that David and his troops are battle-hardened veteran warriors and this small little group of 12,000 soldiers is not near big enough. Hushai's solution is, we need a big army. The biggest army you can possibly get, verse 11. But I counsel that all Israel be surely gathered to you, even from Dan to Beersheba. Dan was the northernmost territory and Beersheba was the southernmost. So we're going to get troops from the entire nation as the sand is by the sea in abundance, one of his metaphors, and that you personally go into battle. So we will come to him in one of the places where he can be found and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and of all the men who are left with him, not even one will be left. Verse 14. Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Underline the next sentence. For the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. Here's the principle. Advice that flatters you is almost always bad advice. You are not nearly as good as you think you are. Right? If someone has to flatter you to get your attention, they're probably not giving you useful advice. We already think fairly highly of ourselves, right? Say yes. Yes, we do. I, I was going to say almost always bad advice. Another way of saying that advice, adv advice that flatters you is almost always useless. It doesn't tell me anything new. It doesn't, it, it doesn't make me better. It doesn't help me. So unlike Ahithophel, Hushai never uses the word I. He uses the word we. We're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're going to do this. He doesn't make himself the sinner. He knows he's a servant. The goal of Ahithophel's advice is kill David immediately. And that's very good advice about how to achieve an evil goal. The goal of Hushai's advice is very simple. He has to buy time for David to escape. David is too close to Jerusalem. He has to buy time for David to escape and gather an army for the battle that's going to come later. So Ahithophel's advice is all about kill David today. Hushai's complete plan is he needs to get David a few days, even a week, to get out of Dodge, get further away, get an army together to fight. So Hushai gets, says to Absalom, we need a big army. We need a big army. And it's going to take some time to get that army, which would give David time to escape. He also advises that as king, Absalom should personally lead this army into battle. And if David retreats into a walled city, we'll get all Israel together with ropes and we'll tear down that wall brick by brick. Hushai's not stupid. He understands that Absalom is a glory hound. Absalom is one of the vainest, most egotistical people. He is a spotlight lover. He could not have written a better script for Absalom. I mean, from Absalom's standpoint, there's no movie script like a great army and a great battle 
and a great victory with me as the great leader. I mean, Hushai is appealing to Absalom's pride and his ego. Other interesting thing. If Ahithophel's plan is followed, and Ahithophel actually goes and kills David that night, who gets the credit for that? Not Absalom. Not the glory hound. Ahithophel gets the credit. And one of the things that Absalom is scared of, if Ahithophel succeeds in killing David and he gets the credit, then Israel might say, you know, Ahithophel, you're a pretty smart guy. Maybe you should be the king. You're sharp. Maybe you should be the king. Absalom's scared about that. And his pride is not going to share the spot with anybody. This guy is a prince charming. He knows nothing about warfare. He knows nothing about leadership. His pride has corrupted his judgment. And as a result, when both sides have been heard, Absalom and Israel's leaders choose to follow Hushai's bad advice and reject Ahithophel's good advice. Have you ever known anybody who listened to stupid advice? And followed it? Why is it always easier to see their swallowing the arsenic than us swallowing the arsenic, right? Verse 14, the last sentence of verse 14 gives you the answer. For the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel in order that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. Here's the principle. God uses our choices and shapes our circumstances to accomplish his purposes. God uses our choices and shapes our circumstance to accomplish his purposes. So you ask the question when you're reading this narrative, who's in control here? Well, not the nation of Israel. They're divided, they're on the verge of civil war. They can't decide who they want to be king. Some want David, some want Absalom. David's certainly not in control. He's fleeing for his life. I mean, he's running out of town so he doesn't get killed. Not Absalom. He's not in control. He has just followed advice that's going to lead him to his death. He's certainly not in charge. Ahithophel's not in charge. His good advice has been rejected, right? And Hushai can't take credit. It was God who put the words in his mouth at the right time he needed them. David had prayed that God would use Hushai's advice to thwart Ahithophel's advice, and God just answered that prayer. Ahithophel knows that the only issue that matters is David's death and he wants to do it. And Hushai knows that he has to buy time for David to flee and prepare. Absalom is willing to delay going after David if he gets to be the hero. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, it's amazing what you can get done if you don't care who gets the credit? That's down in the Ronald Reagan Museum. I think that's really true. If you don't care who gets the credit, it's amazing what God can get done. But when our ego wants the credit, we get in the way of what the Lord wants to do. And that was Absalom's problem. He wanted to lead the army himself, even though he was completely ill-equipped, and he was willing to delay the time to do that. Absalom is really a case study, and pride goes before a fall. But the real issue is God is orchestrating each one of these events, each one of these people, each one of these timelines in order to accomplish his purposes. God had three purposes here. Number one, discipline David for his sin. Number two, demonstrate to Israel the consequences of sin. And number three, destroy Absalom who's trying to overthrow the Lord's anointed. God was not done with David. 
God had purpose for him even though he had sinned. And that gives us hope because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God only uses broken people. So you all qualify for service. You're not only qualified for service, we're invited and commanded to serve with the King of Kings. Proverbs 21.1 is a great illustration of this principle. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he chooses. When I used to farm back in the day, if you were trying to irrigate something and you had a head of water, you could wherever you wanted to go. Even when you're farming a garden, you know, you take your little hoe and you make a trench and the water follows wherever you drew that trench. So the Lord says, look, I handle the king's heart like moving water down a water course. When your plans oppose God, no matter how brilliant they are from a human point of view, they will fail. Here's Absalom's key problem. Absalom is asking advice about how to successfully oppose God. His father was anointed king by God. Absalom has rebelled against that advice and he's asking for human advice about how to successfully oppose God. Now here's a statement I didn't highlight, but I'll just give it to you anyway. Sin always makes you stupid. And it is always stupid to think that you can successfully oppose God. It is always stupid to think that you can successfully oppose God. So Absalom chooses a plan that appeals to his pride but leads to his death. The only advice Absalom really needed at this point in time was, I need to repent from my sinful plan to murder my father and rebel against God. You know, when you read the news, watch the news, they specialize in telling us what's wrong with the world, right? There's always a crisis somewhere. Have you noticed that? No matter what you're watching, there's always a problem someplace. Number two, anytime you put human leadership behind a microphone, what do they tell you? We've got the solution. We've got a plan. We're going to deal with this. We are large and in charge. If human leaders are in control of this planet, they're doing a lousy job of taking care of business. Right? When you see what a mess the world is in, it's really easy to conclude that no one's in charge. The reality is God is always in control. Psalm 2, a royal psalm, I think the first few verses give us a picture of the mess on planet Earth from God's perspective. Psalm 2, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? That's our world today, right? Everybody's in an uproar. There's always a crisis. The kings of the earth or the presidents of the earth or the prime ministers of the earth or the dictators of the earth, whatever, take their stand behind the microphone and the rulers take counsel together. They're always in a G7 meeting, a G20 meeting or whatever. We're going to have a conversation about what we're going to do. They take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed Jesus Christ. And they say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Nobody's going to tell us what to do, least of all God. Here's God's perspective, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. You've heard the old line, if you want to make the Lord laugh, tell him your plans. Here's what I am going to do. 
um, you're breathing his air. You're not going to do anything without his permission. Then the Lord will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. You'll notice, and this is a sidebar, but it's essential. Anytime Almighty God is portrayed in Scripture, what is he always doing? Sitting on the throne. Every time you see Satan in Scripture, he's scurrying around trying to you know, mess this up and trying to deceive and roar like a lion, etc., etc. God is always seated on the throne, perfectly in control of everything that happens in his world. Perfectly in control. And you and I say, well, it doesn't seem like he's in control. That's because you don't see it from heaven's point of view. Your vision and my vision is not 2020. Weir vision is constrained by our circumstances. And with the eyes of faith, we understand that God is in control of everything. And he is on the throne. There is no circumstance in your life or in anyone's life that he is not in charge of. Be comforted. The world who rebels against God, they're saying, what are we going to do? How are we going to fix this? You're not going to fix anything. God's going to fix it. And when we listen to him and do what he says, then he shapes the circumstances and uses human choice to accomplish his will. See, God does give people free will, right? They can choose A or B or C. They can choose to accept him or reject him. But human choice is always constrained by divine decree. Human choice is always constrained by divine decree. How many of you ever raised preschoolers? Those of you, at one time they were preschool. They still act like they're preschool, even though they're 33, but right, they're preschool. How many of you ever had, as a parent, your preschooler wants to wear something to school and you don't want them to wear it? And they get into, get into an argument about who's in charge and who's going to wear what. Marin told me something years ago, decades ago. She says, here's the deal, Brad. You pick out three outfits and they can choose any one of the three. You just make sure the three outfits you pick out, you're okay with them wearing any one of the three. So you pick the three outfits and you say, you can wear whatever you want of these three. That's what God does. That's what God does. You have choice, but your choice is constrained with parental constraints, with divine constraints. See, God shapes every circumstance on planet Earth to accomplish his purposes, not our purposes. When we agree with his purposes, circumstances work for us and not against us. When we disagree with God's purposes, then circumstances work against us and not for us. There's a Bible verse, I couldn't tell you the scripture reference right now. It says, the way of the wicked is hard because you're always butting up against God's will. And you can't win that argument. It's like swimming up Niagara Falls. I don't care if you're an Olympic champion. You are not going to succeed swimming up Niagara Falls. You're going to drown. Verse 23. Now when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey. The old King James has another word for that, which I'm not going to say. Every time I read that as a kid, I used to just crack up. I thought... He's got, a, he's got a saddle around him. How's this working? You know, when you're 10 years old and you're in church and you're kind of reading scripture, and you're going, wow, he's going home with a saddle around his behind. How does this work? He saddled his donkey and arose and went to his home, to his city, set his house in order and strangled himself. Thus he died and was buried in the grave of his father. 
Here's the principle. My will be done is the way of death. Thy will be done is the path of life, and everyone must choose. There's only two ways. One leads to life, one leads to death, and you cannot avoid a choice. Now, Ahithophel, at this point, is considered the wisest man in the nation. David and Absalom both followed his advice as if God spoke, which means he really ran the country. He was also a pretty proud man. He was used to having his advice followed because every time he said something, people listened. And when his advice is rejected now, number one, he feels humiliated. But even more importantly, he realized that Absalom was going to die. And David was going to win. Absalom, I mean, Ahithophel figured out he had bet on the wrong horse and lost. He knew David was going to win because Hushai said, gather a large army. Ahithophel immediately knew that in that kind of a conflict, Absalom didn't have a chance. It was only a question of when, but David was going to win that war. And when David came back to Jerusalem as king, Ahithophel is going to have to face him as a traitor. And that was a capital crime. So instead of being further humiliated by being executed for treason, Ahithophel goes home. And you're persuaded he must have been a pretty logical person because he sets his house in order. I don't know whether he writes his will out or whether he leaves a note, but whatever it was, and then he hangs himself. There are seven suicides in the Bible. He's one of them. Other suicides include Abimelech, Samson, Saul, Saul's armor bearer, Zimri, who was the king of Israel, and Judas. Interesting that both Ahithophel and Judas were traitors who then took their own lives by hanging. Judas betrayed our Lord Jesus. Ahithophel betrayed King David, who was a type of Christ. You know, Ithophel is a very perceptive and humanly wise person. Of anyone in Israel, Ahithophel understood clearly that God himself had anointed David king. And only God could remove him as king. So in betraying David, Ahithophel had really declared war on God. Both Ahithophel and Judas, you'll notice, become traitors, not with ignorance, but they become traitors with full knowledge. Ahithophel had spent years with David, perhaps even decades. He was a good close friend. He knew him well. Judas spent three, three and a half years walking with Jesus day and night, 24 by 7. So neither Ahithophel nor Judas could claim ignorance. They betrayed their master with full knowledge. And Judas was greedy for gain, and Ahithophel was greedy for revenge. His lust for revenge drew him away from serving God. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Verse 14 and 15 tells you the progression. Anytime you sin, here's why. Write it down. Each one is tempted when he was carried away and enticed by his own lust. People go, the devil made me do it. The devil doesn't make you do anything. The devil puts 
chocolate out there. There's arsenic inside and says, wouldn't you like some fruit? This is a great tree, right? He tempts you. He doesn't make you sin. You make you sin. You choose your own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is grown up and accomplished, it brings forth death. The problem was Ahithophel was humanly wise, but he was not willing to wait for God to deal with David. He was going to take matters in his own hands. He was going to kill David himself. Satisfying his own desires had become more important than serving God. God says what in Romans 12, 19? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And Ahithophel said, no, no. Vengeance is mine. I'm going to stick him myself. God, you're not taking care of business in my time, in my way, fast enough. You're too slow. I'm going to grab the wheel. I'm driving the bus. We're going down the road I want to go down, not the road you want to go down. Have you ever done that? Did you do it this morning on the way to church? Yeah, we do it all the time. That's routine. It's always a question of, whose will is going to be done. See, Ahithophel says, it's been 12 years and he's still on the throne and he's a murderer and adulterer. God, you're not fair. If you're in charge, you're corrupt. And we have people today say, well, if God's in charge of the universe, man, he's not doing a very good job, right? How come he doesn't deal with evil? Well, God will deal with evil. And people that tell me that, I say, it's real simple. If God's going to deal with all evil on the planet, he's got to deal with you now and me now. Are you ready to face him? You want justice? There's going to come a day when justice will be done. But right now he gives us mercy because he gives us time to repent. That's why he withholds judgment. Ahithophel, self-righteous, said, you haven't taken God out in 12 years. I'm going to do it myself. What it really is is saying, God, I know better than you do. My way is better than your way. I'm rebelling against your sovereignty because I know better than you do. That's exactly what Satan did. And all his followers have been doing the same thing ever since. You know, this week, every one of us in this room is going to face multiple decisions. Most of us have dozens of decisions every day. And some of those decisions you face are really going to be dilemmas. Some decisions you're going to face this week are not simple. I don't know what to have for breakfast. I mean, they're going to be tough decisions. What do we do with that situation? with that person, with that child or grandchild or colleague at work or financial. I mean, they're really dilemmas. And every decision at the end of the day boils down to, am I going to do this my way? Or am I committed to doing it God's way and I'm willing to lay it before him and ask for his advice and wait for his advice? And then when he shows me what to do, I'm committed to obey it. The way you will get God's advice, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God in faith, and the way you will get it is to wait for it, and regardless of what it is, do it. See, you can't ask God, show me what to do, and by the way, if I like what you say, we got a deal. If I don't like what you say, no deal. Then you play, you're, you're God. You're telling God, I know more than you do. And that's what Ahithophel did. Every decision, ultimately, am I going to do this my way? Am I going to do this God's way? Let's review. And then uh, Marty will come up and do prayer requests. We've got a couple minutes. We'll open it up for some questions. So if there are things you're thinking about, just uh, be thinking about that. Number one, know God's word. 
and refuse to follow advice that disagrees with it. If you don't know the gold standard for truth, how do you make decisions in light of that? If you don't know what God has to say, you will undoubtedly follow what humans have to say. Number two, good advice has specific goals and measurable outcomes. Number three, advice that flatters you is always useless and it's almost always bad advice. Number four, God uses our choices and shapes our circumstance to accomplish his purposes. By the way, what I didn't say there is, you can be opposed to God. You can be an enemy of God. You can hate God. He's still going to accomplish his purposes through your opposition. Satan's evil is used by God to accomplish his purposes. Your opposition, my opposition, Satan's opposition, nothing is going to thwart God's purposes from being accomplished. Lastly, my will be done is the way of death. Thy will be done is the path of life. And everyone must choose. So now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.